You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Global Institute. Hello and welcome to this edition of the McKinsey Podcast. My name is Cecilia Mazeka. I'm an editor with McKinsey Publishing based in Singapore. China's economy has been powered by investment and it's been hugely successful, but China is now experiencing growing pains. The investment model is losing steam. Growth has slowed, debt has risen, and return on invested capital has fallen. The economy is distorted. More than 80% of economic profit comes from the financial sector. Could China's economy be facing a hard landing? McKinsey Global Institute's latest report on China's economy says there are risks, but China can face such challenges. In fact, China has a choice, and it can choose to shift gears decisively to an economy centered on productivity instead of investment. MGI estimates that this approach could add $5.6 trillion to GDP and $5.1 trillion in household income. Here to tell us more is MGI director Jonathan Wetzel and also McKinsey's chairman in Asia, Kevin Sneeder. Jonathan, let me start with you. What are the trade-offs to begin with between an economic growth model that is driven by investment and one that is centered on productivity? Well, the history of China's economic growth in the last couple of decades has been all about investments. It's been about savings, which have translated into investments in infrastructure and urbanization, which in turn have created opportunities for literally hundreds of millions of Chinese people to uh, become more productive. That said, it's been very much a story of, if you will, quantity over quality. So that simply uh, the strategy in China was all about simply showing up, uh, literally building something, and then people would come there and almost anything they would do would be more productive than what they were doing before. Today, infrastructure stock as a share of GDP is over 70%, which is roughly the world average. So now it's less about showing up and making those investments than what are we doing with those investments and how good a job are we doing in making those investments and where does how do these investments translate into real economic productivity quality growth uh, so that's the that's the transition it's from quantity to quality and from how much of it are you doing to how well are you doing it kevin why do you think it's urgent for china to make that transition now there are several reasons to urge a more rapid move from what Jonathan has described as showing up to actually being productive. And the reason for this, I think, stems from both an opportunity and a challenge. The opportunity is that there really is a potential here for China to take the next step in terms of consumption and actually create an economy that has a more inclusive nature to it and has the potential to actually allow members of the Chinese economy to actually participate in a way that some have not. And let me put some numbers behind this. What is quite striking today is that the rate of growth has seen 600 million people raised out of poverty. That's what Jonathan said when he talked about quantity. It has seen an economy that has sustained double-digit growth for almost 25 years. And all of that has translated into huge progress on many dimensions. But here's the challenge. There are some clouds that really now cannot be ignored. If you look at non-performing loans, the official number says somewhere around 1.7%. An estimate today is probably that number is 
one could get to a place in a few years' time where that number is 15%. At 15%, whilst we do not doubt that China could afford, given the scale and nature of its financial assets, to maintain the health and well-being of the financial sector, you would face a liquidity crunch that would have significant implications for many Chinese financial institutions. That's a matter of real concern. Secondly, the reality is that as urbanization inevitably slows, and it's been worth, what, 2 to 3% a year in terms of incremental growth in urbanization, as that rate slows to 1%, the big driver of a lot of the economic growth that has happened, namely taking people from a rural environment and putting them in an urban environment, that starts to slow. And as that slows, the economic opportunity could slow too. And then perhaps... The third most urgent reason why it's time for this change to occur is that in some regards, the inequality within the Chinese society has been getting much sharper. You now find that that top 20% of people who have household income in the top 20%, they are in effect controlling somewhere between over half of all the economic growth. They're gaining from that growth disproportionately. As Kevin highlights, the uh, economic uh, liabilities that have been accruing by lending to enterprises which are no longer uh, earning a return on capital, those are, those are real. They will have to be dealt with. There's a no scenario where that doesn't happen. Uh, the only question really is how much growth will the rest of the economy, the productive economy, uh, deliver? And how will we direct capital to the rest of the economy? We know that 50% of commercial bank lending is still going to capital intensive, heavy industries dominated largely by state enterprises, which are not, in fact, returning, uh, earning a return on capital. So how does that change over time and how quickly that changes is actually the, 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 the central question. How is Chinese business and government doing right now with productivity in general? We see a vast disparity between the performance of the top quartile of the firms and the bottom, uh, the long tail, the bottom 50%, and uh, a much broader span of performance than we would in a North American or any competitive OECD economy. And I think that reflects this fundamental transition in that it's been about showing up. It hasn't been about performance. And so we have a really broad range of performance here. Uh, that's, the, that's the big uh, challenge for China is how does it help uh, narrow that uh, span of performance if you bring up the bottom tail or simply allow the top uh, performers to grow and expand and deliver better products and services to Chinese consumers uh, at, a, at a more competitive, uh, competitive cost. Just to build on Jonathan's point, I mean, Chinese productivity on average is 15 to 30 percent of the OECD average. And as Jonathan says, within that headline, there is enormous differences. I work with Chinese clients who are every bit as productive as their Western counterparts. In fact, if you look at some of the high-tech manufacturing, you can absolutely see Chinese firms who are productive in the same sense that you would see it in the West. The difference is that range is enormous. And for example, in retail, where I spend a lot of time working, whereas in the West, uh, the role of B2B in terms of the e-commerce engines, using that to control supply chains, making sure that goods are tracked throughout the chain, there's a big distance between what happens here in China and what happens in the West. And so therefore the productivity gap there is particularly large. And I think that is the challenge. How does this productivity gap, which is acute in a number of industries and offset in part by labor, but the problem is labor costs have been rising dramatically. 
And so the Chinese competitiveness in terms of the labor cost equation versus the productivity equation is not what it needs to be. And you can see in a number of sectors where that is resulting in China's share dropping. And there's the opportunity. If China can get just that bit more productive, then you actually would start to see that equation look a lot more balanced than it is right now. The reason why it's important to answer the question you had about the trade-off is China has shown itself rather adept at handling significant transformations in the past. And I think we are in danger of underestimating the ability of this economy to react to the environment which now exists. So if we think about it just narrow consumer terms, there were 2 million households who had disposable income, let's say, ahead of 20,000 US dollars back in the year 2000. That number today is 115 or 116 million households, and you could see that number rising to well over 300 million in the event of material productivity gains being delivered. That matters because I think that talks to the transition which needs to happen towards a consumption economy, one where goods and services actually play more of a role domestically than has been the case in the past. And if that happens, then you can be much more optimistic about the country being able to handle the scale of transition that it now needs to do. It's also worth remembering that it's not that long ago the SOEs were 50% plus of all employment, and today they are, what, 15%, a much smaller number. Is there a business confidence that China will make the right choice? There is a high degree of confidence, if for no other reason than this is an optimistic place. I mean, there's a track record of success. In some ways, most people look at China and they say, well, you know, they've done the hard part, which was double-digit growth for 25 years. There are very few economies, if any, that could actually state that. So the uh, that plus the... The, the reservoir of, uh, of savings, of capacity to intervene uh, from both companies and, and government, that, that, that's, that's very high. The pace of the change and the, the, the rapidity of the change, I think that one is actually very much up for grabs. I think that there is a sort of a, a very near-term question about how will China manage what is a relatively low-growth global environment. And uh, I think if there's one thing that's on the mind of the Chinese government is how to be resilient in the event of a, of a new OECD recession. I think that's right. And what I'm very struck by as I travel domestically here in China and overseas is that overseas business leaders are a lot more worried about China than Chinese business leaders are worried about China. And I think the reason for that is for many Chinese business leaders, there remains a real sense of opportunity because they can see the transition taking place. And particularly if you're in the consumer sector, for example, you can see a number of trends actually working in your favor, whether it's the premiumization of products, the continued development of income amongst those moving into the consuming classes. And you therefore see that opportunity. I think when you're overseas and you're looking at China, you hear the headlines and you get a lot more nervous. And that, that uh, disparity, if anything, has grown. But domestic Chinese businesses and their leadership or businesses in China, I think they remain quietly confident because they've already been through a lot. And quite frankly, they remember from where they came. And if you remember from where they came only a matter of years ago, you can see why they see reason to believe and be the optimist that many of them are. We underappreciated exactly how entrepreneurial Chinese society is. I mean, literally, there have been more entrepreneurs in China than anywhere else on the planet for the last decade. And that's the, we're in the era of the Carnegies and Mellons and Rockefellers and Rothschilds, for that matter. This, this dynasties are being created now. I think the other reality is Chinese companies have a number of areas where they're still to hone the, still to hone the skills needed for success. A simple area, branding. If you actually look at China, 
despite the enormous growth of its consumer goods sector, it only has two brands in the top 100. And I think that talks to a skill gap on the creativity side, which still needs to be closed in the area of consumer goods. And more generally, I think there's still work to be done in the R&D area when it comes to science-based breakthroughs. China still does not pull its weight in areas like pharmaceuticals. Now, again, there are an awful lot of entrepreneurs working on both those topics. I've certainly spent quite a bit of time with Chinese business leaders on this subject of branding. And trust me, they will crack it. It's just a matter of when, not if. In our report, we highlight five opportunities to raise productivity, uh, you know, better serve the middle class using digital technologies and improving business operations and so forth. Can you talk a little bit more about them, Jonathan? These opportunities are, first of all, they're all getting attention by the folks that are in the, uh, the, the in China. Uh, we drew those five by looking at that top quartile of companies, the ones that are the outperformers. And this, these are the things that they're doing. They're, they're globalizing, they're digitizing, they're, they're focusing on the, on the middle-class consumer, and they are um, trying to move up the value chain. I think these are, these are the ha habits of the, of the successful companies. As to which ones will really move the needle, I well, I'm actually probably where Kevin is in terms of the value chain opportunity. If we just look at what is the opportunity for branding and for higher uh, productivity of uh, products and services, you know, China earns half the margin in pharma of what its OECD counterparts do, Chinese companies do that, or for that matter, in, in semiconductors. Now, it's a, or any other sort of a innovation intensive industries, there's just a massive opportunity for Chinese companies to capture the, the, the fruits of their labor, if you will, of their, of their talent. And so anything that can be done to raise services productivity will have a huge multiplier effect. In the case of China, the ability to you know, bring a better product or service to, via, the, via the web uh, to the Chinese consumer pays off, or it pays off dramatically, as we've seen in the growth of the, of the Chinese, uh, Chinese internet companies. The digitization that's happening in China is happening at a remarkable pace. And if you recall that today, today, not the future today, the Chinese market for online commerce is larger than the market in the United States by quite some distance, by about 80%. The gap is enormous. And I think as that continues, the learning and the experience that Chinese companies are building will lead to sustained innovation. It already is. Uh, the innovation that's happened around the whole payments industry in China is far superior to that which has happened in other parts of the world. At the same time, there are areas where China lags on the digital side. If you look at the amount that China invests in digitizing its supply chain, it's roughly half that of Western companies. Well, that's a major opportunity for productivity gains. If that investment can translate into better management of infrastructure and supply, then that should boost economic returns quite significantly. And that does require investment and it does require complementing the huge focus on the consumer side of the digital experience with an equal focus on the supply side and the business-to-business -business elements of it. I think once that focus happens, we'll see enormous gains because China's proven to be very, very good at process-based innovation and less good at other types, and that's what's required here. 
I agree, and I would actually uh, add to, again some numbers on this one that uh, you know the uh, SMEs in China maybe only ten to fifteen percent have any kind of web enablement, and uh, compared to you know forty, fifty, sixty percent in OECD, so that that in and of itself is just a massive opportunity as it as those SMEs come online as they will through integrated supply chain management by uh, larger uh, downstream OEMs uh, or uh, by help by customer relationship management programs to reach to reach the middle class and you know, it will just speed up the the, the pace of Chinese business uh, so this is something that will happen it's a it's a massive opportunity for productivity growth it's also a massive opportunity for demand growth we also see that the, in many ways that there are products and services just simply not reaching the customer right now and with with enablement through digitization that can happen and that will that will translate into into income into demand and ultimately into employment as well but let's also not forget that one of the five that we highlighted was Chinese companies going global. And while China has dramatically ratcheted up its investment overseas, I think it's growing at 25% per annum over the last decade, the reality is we're still in the early stages of that phenomenon. And what's happening now is it's a shift from acquisitions in resource-heavy areas into technology and services. And as China's acquisitions overseas shift into technologies and services, well, so too will the capabilities associated with them build. And those capabilities will be very relevant back here in China, just as they are overseas. Hearing you talk about the pace of digitization in China being very fast, what are the risks and how should China address them? I mean, for one, helping displaced workers uh, shift into different jobs and industries. Well, I think that China is actually in a relatively fortunate uh, place because it's still it's catching all of this at a fairly early stage of development. I mean that uh, you know we're still only halfway through the urbanization journey, so we still have a lot of folks who simply don't have any legacy, and so they're not hanging on to anything. So they come into the city and they just look for what they can get. Now, in the past, those folks would have gone to the job site, the construction site, and they'd say, you know, give me a pick and a shovel and I'll do something. Those jobs aren't there anymore. So where do they go? Well, they go to become an express delivery guy on a scooter uh, serving an e-commerce company. So it's uh, in many ways that China's taking this entire agricultural population and leapfrogging them right into a post-industrial services economy. Uh, that's the you know that's the massive transition. Now, of course, some folks won't be able to make it, and that is a risk. And so the risk is about how does one enable this workforce for a you know 21st century economy coming out of a 19th century one. And uh, so there is a mobility challenge. There's a training challenge. There's a uh, uh, there is an inc income inequality challenge. And one other, uh, you can call an advantage, or maybe it's just a reality, which is the Chinese working age population is shrinking. Uh, China's population of the working ages peaked two years ago and will decline a half percent per annum over the next uh, 20 or so years. It's not necessarily a good thing, but it does actually help when it comes to the issue we're discussing of how do you handle this displacement of workers. The reality is China has a shrinking labor force, which makes the need for skilled uh, employees even higher. So I actually think that the combination of the factors that Jonathan describes, plus the reality of what's happening demographically, actually means that China probably has more reason to be able to do this successfully than one might think. Finally, you know, China's transition will provide a new set of opportunities for businesses that are operating in China and competing companies around the world. What's your advice for CEOs to navigate this transition? 
Well, I think the first piece of advice is please come to China and uh, that there are more, uh, there's, there's more to be learned. And China is a, a full body experience when the context is uh, all about, uh, is, is all important in interpreting the numbers. And so the, uh, there's a high, high level of risk in trying to develop one's China thinking uh, from outside the country. I think the other simple observation I would make about the importance of understanding what's really happening on the ground in China by being here is don't fall victim to simple headlines. Some seem to believe that China's economic miracle, as it's called, has been based purely on cheap labor and actually has very little to do with technology. Well, there are some numbers that can talk to that. So I've had people tell me about, well, China doesn't have very many robots in its factories. Well, that's one way of looking at it. Or you could say that China accounts for about 25% of all demand for robots today, let alone what's going to happen in the future. If anything, it's going to ratchet up as this transition occurs, as the need to do things differently, and couple that with a very entrepreneurial class of business leaders. The private sector in China is very vibrant. And I think when you're here, you sense the pace and the way with which messages such as the ones we've been discussing today get translated into action very quickly. And that's, I think, the consequence for everyone looking at China, which is don't underestimate the rate of change, the capacity of this market to make the shift, and the way in which business leaders will see that and translate it into very tangible and real opportunities. And I really hope that companies listening to this overseas take that as a sense of, okay, we need to get closer to what's happening and view this as part of a broader set of changes, which are positive. People generally get that China is big story at this point. They don't always get that China is fast story it's, uh, because it's actually it's a bit hard to see. You're, you're it's like being on a train. You know it's going there, but you don't realize exactly how fast you're passing the landscape until until the train either either you get off the train or the train hits you. So um, I think most people need to sort of look at how quickly events are changing in their industry, how quickly Chinese competitors are entering, and how quickly the Chinese market is becoming the market. Uh, and then step back and saying, so where do we fit? Jonathan and Kevin, thank you for your insights today. And thank you for listening to this podcast. If you want to find out more about our knowledge and insights on China, head over to McKinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at McKinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.